This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, this is former WWE superstar and ECW original, The Blue Meanie. And Josh Chernoff. And uh, we're excited to announce that Mind of the Meanie is now powered by the MLW Radio Network. Myself and Josh Chernoff will bring you a show every week where we talk about everything from wrestling, movies, sports, and useless knowledge. But most importantly, we have a great group of neighbors there with front row material. Absolutely. Front row material. We've got Mike Freeland. We've got Mikey Whipwreck. And we have got hashtag... This is Jerry Lynn. You're welcome again for that. I love to be here with you guys. I'm glad to call you neighbor. Maybe I'll stop over for uh, some extra coffee or a cup of sugar or have a slice of dropped pie. Ditto. Please tune in to Mind and the Meanie. Please keep supporting Front Row Material and we'll be a part of this great MLW radio network. Everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. What is going on, everybody? Mike Freeland here for Overbooked as we chronicle the extremely unauthorized story of ECW. We are heading into chapter 16, and if you are following along at home, this chapter is entitled The Whole Effin Show. But uh, before we get going, I just want to uh, Say thank you to everybody who's been uh, downloading the podcast and giving me some feedback, hitting me up with DMs. I really do appreciate that. Love going down memory lane and talking ECW with all of the amazing front row material brand listeners. You guys have been awesome. And I hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, I hope that everybody is, is staying healthy, is staying safe. And man, I tell you what, this heat outside is something else. But uh, you know what? While it's hot outside... You can always sit inside with a nice, cool lemonade, iced tea, whatever your beverage of choice is, and listen to the podcasts as we go down the road. That was ECW. All right, with that being said, we're into Chapter 16. It is entitled The Whole Effin' Show. While ECW swam along, the two biggest fish in the wrestling pond were at war with each other. And both WCW and WWF had repeatedly proven their willingness to shade the line between wrestling and reality, a line ECW had been trampling over for years. Now that blur came back to haunt ECW on October 30th of 1997 show in Plymouth, Pennsylvania. Two fans threw punches at Balls Mahoney and a fight ensued in which five fans ended up facing various charges, including assault, disorderly conduct, and harassment. Now, WCW had recently done an angle with a fan coming out of the stands to attack a wrestler as well. An ECW Halloween 1997 show in the WWF's hometown of Stanford, Connecticut, was a little more pleasant. ECW wrestlers made the most of the date and the sight of the show, which drew a thousand fans by showing the fans the awful gimmicks that they had in the WWF. Al Snow came out dressed as an avatar, failed martial art character who had once been in the WWF. Peter Just Incredible Polanco came out as Aldo Montoya. Shane Douglas reprised his character of Dean Douglas, which was an evil school teacher. But another new arrival in ECW, 
Jerry Lynn put on his Mr. JL mask that he once wore in WCW. The show's main event saw Rob Van Dam, still in the WWF Defender role, lose a flag match to Tommy Dreamer. It was also during this time that longtime WWE standover, Bret Hart was now on his way to WCW after he agreed to lose the WWF title, uh, kind of, in some weird circumstances to Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series. For those of you who are not familiar with the Montreal Screwjob, that is when Vince McMahon double-crossed Bret Hart, putting the title on Shawn Michaels, and then saw Bret Hart draw the letters of WCW in the air, then spitting on Vince McMahon to leave the WWF and join rival Eric Bischoff. As our story continues, we're going to be revisiting a character that we had once spoke about, and that was Front Row Material's very own Jerry Lynn. In the early 90s, Jerry Lynn had helped usher in a high-flying era that ECW later made. Still, he did not think he would end up wrestling there. The funny thing is, when I was in WCW, I watched ECW, Lynn said, but I always swore I would never subject myself to what they do. Lynn's ECW offer actually came after a tryout match for the WWF in 1997. Lynn would go on to say, I had my tryout with Takamishinoku, and Paul Lee saw it and had Chris Candido ask me if I wanted to come in, Lynn said. The two sides agreed on money and scheduling, but Lynn had one more thing to address before he could join the company. Lynn says, I said I will not have some idiot hitting me in the head with a frying pan. Working in WCW as the masked man named Mr. JL had been a low point in Jerry's career. Lynn would say, when I was in WCW, I wanted to quit the wrestling business altogether. It was like they knew how to take all the fun out of the industry. By the end of November brought a crowd that shattered all ECW records before. 4,634 packed the Golden Dome in Pennsylvania. It was a pay-per-view that Paul Heyman had promised would be one of the biggest November to remember of 1997. The show was also a painful one for many ECW performers. Tommy Rogers suffered a neck injury. Tommy Dreamer hurt his ankle in a match against Rob Van Dam. The Sandman injured his shoulder and arms and ribs in a tables and ladders and chair match against Sabu. And Shane Douglas exasperated an existing elbow injury in his title win over former triple threat member Bam Bam Bigelow. Now injuries would continue to plague ECW stars over the next few nights. Doug Furness and Phil LaFon won the tag team titles from the Dudleys. Now Furness and LaFon had been a tag team who had made a uneventful run prior in the WWF. That night, they portrayed the characters of WWF missionaries. And if it was just for one night, the Dudleys were actually the crowd favorites. The title change was the kind that makes everything good, Heyman said. I like to give the fans whatever I can, even if it is in the form of a substitution. In this case, the makeshift gangsters, a team of Cronus and New Jack, needed replacing when Cronus suffered an injury at the previous night's show in Revere. The show also featured an injury to Sabu that would have him debilitated over a very long period of time and would show that he was still mortal. Sabu missed his triple jump moonsault and busted his jaw on the leg of a table. His remedy? He taped his jaw shut for the next night's show at the ECW arena. As we continue our discussion on Jerry Lynn, his first major feud in ECW was against Justin Credible, whose heel work made it apparent that the WWF had missed a considerable talent. Lynn would go on to say, Justin was a great heel and a lot of fun to work with. He and I would come up with ideas to make our matches more exciting. But every time we asked permission to do something different, it got shot down. And then half the time, 
we'd see somebody else doing the very same thing we suggested. Finally, we had gotten our biggest match to date. Best of three falls at an ECW arena. I told Justin, we're not asking permission to do anything. We're just going to go out there and do it. The two of them went out and put on a show-stealing performance. Lynn said the locker room was a mix of emotions when they returned backstage. When we came back, a lot of the guys gave us an ovation, although I could tell there were certain guys who were not so happy to have to follow our match. That was never something I worried about, Lynn said. I always wanted to have a match that the crowd really got into. I didn't go out there to just, quote, have a match. I wanted the best match of the show. As 1997 drew to a close, morale was up as wrestlers were getting their hardcore heaven pay-per-view checks, which was more sizable than the barely legal ones they had previously received. And a new year brought more new stops to the ECW schedule. The company's debut in Indianapolis on January 4th of 1998 saw ECW draw 1,000 fans, which was a sellout. Still, when it came to the black, ECW was still not doing very well. In fact, they were continuously in the red. The company was going even closer to bankruptcy. In March, tickets went on sale for ECW's May 3rd Wrestlepalooza show in Marietta, Georgia. The first day tickets went on sale, they sold 794 with $34,000 in receipts. But also in March, they had shows at Wadham and Revere. They drew sellouts while a Queens, New York show on March 13th drew an overflow crowd of 1,000 fans. The next night in Poughkeepsie, New York, drew 1,600 fans. But they had to do something else. They weren't going to see the Sandman. The Athletic Commission would not let him wrestle because of his high blood pressure. And in August of 1998, ECW was drawing increasingly strong crowds. Witness of the 2,800 who attended the August 13, 98 show, which emanated in Buffalo, New York. By 1998, Paul Richard said business was strong in the New England areas, but the Spanish-language channel that aired ECW in English in the Boston area was continuously having problems getting the show on time. We were selling shows out with 1,000 to 1,500 each time, but I was consistently getting calls from the TV station because they weren't getting the tapes. There were so many nights Paul would have the TV show driven from New York to Boston just to get it put on the air a day late. The policy of the station was if a tape was not there the day before, so it could look at it and review it and make sure that there weren't any issues with it airing, the show would not get aired. One time, Paul flew it down here on a plane, and my partner, Mike, picked it up at the airport. If the stations weren't so into what we were doing, they wouldn't have aired it. What Paul and the company presented as ECW's 15th consecutive sellout came on March 21st of 1998 at the ECW Arena. However, others close to Paul Heyman said the ECW Arena almost never sold out, and that many of the tickets for the house shows in the former bingo hall were papered. That's Russell speak for free tickets given out to people to fill up the stands. But ECW kept plugging along, although the signals were still mixed. One week in October of 1998 was the company's biggest money week ever, strictly in terms of live attendance. They drew 3,500 fans for $71,000 in Buffalo. They drew 3,300 paid for 62,000 in Pittsburgh, 2,300 paid in Cleveland for 42,000, and an Al Toon show drew 1,000 fans for a gate of 24000 The stint also brought in $83,000 in total merchandise sales. However, by 1998, wrestling companies were no longer living and dying by the gates as they had in decades past. Now, the real money 
was in television revenues and pay-per-view buys. ECW's views were drawing just shy of 100,000. That was at best. Most hovered closer to 50 to 60,000. For the sake of perspective, 50,000 would, would be one quarter of what WCW and WWF shows were doing in 97 and in 98. And Heyman was starting to complain that the pay-per-view revenues were taking long time to reach ECW. Now, regardless of whether they all were paid on time or not, a full house of fans saw Al Snow at the peak of his head gimmick popularity, pinning an increasingly popular Rob Van Dam. The push to break out Rob Van Dam on his own started soon after, with Heyman teasing a storyline splitting between Rob Van Dam and his longtime tag team partner, Sabu. On April 4th of 98, about a week after the start of the breakup angle, Van Dam scored the upset that launched him into the top tier of ECW stars. The match was a TV title shot at champ Bam Bam Bigelow, and the story idea was that Van Dam would soften up Bigelow for his upcoming match against Sabu. Bigelow dominated early, throwing Van Dam all over the ring and on the guardrails, and even into the third row. Van Dam ended up coming back in the match in a thrilling turn of events, at one point hitting an incredible somersault flip, jumping from the ring over the top rope and onto Bigelow, who was standing in the crowd. The match ended when Sabu came to the ring and attacked Bigelow, ending with a chair in Bigelow's hands. Van Dam then kicked the chair into his face in a move that would be now known as the Van Daminator, and Rob got the win. Van Dam and Sabu rode on as tag team champions, but they still couldn't stand each other. At Heat Wave 98 pay-per-view, they continued their winning ways as they defeated their opponents to retain the tag team titles. Van Dam regularly performed aerial moves, getting more height and distance than anyone else. As a cocky heel, he had taken to calling himself the whole effing show, making him more than just the best thing on the show. Fans picked up on it and chanted it regularly during his matches. Van Dam had truly arrived as a top star, and ECW had room for more, as longtime ECW icon The Sandman had now signed a $200,000 a year contract with WCW. The same day that the compilation disc ECW Extreme Music was released, the disc featured a dozen songs used by ECW wrestlers, and the barbed wire man himself was on the cover. About a month and a half later, Bam Bam Bigelow followed suit, signing a two-year deal with Turner Broadcasting Company. Now, the Sandman stint in WCW was short-lived and not particularly memorable. He adopted a new name, Hardcore Hack, taken from Hack, a nickname that he had been given years before he even got in wrestling. Van Dam and Sabu would end up opposing each other as often as they teamed up over the next several months. However, the opponent who had Van Dam's most memorable matches made his first challenge to the TV champ a little more than a month after Van Dam defeated Bigelow. He was a smallish but incredibly conditioned wrestler who had made a name for himself years earlier in the independent scene, who had never seemed to get real traction or a break with a major company. He was the aforementioned Jerry Lynn. In his first match against Van Dam, which was on May 15, 98, in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, the match would begin a sporadic series of bouts that would become perhaps ECW's most fondly remembered rivalry. To this day, one of the things people come up and mention to me most is the feud I had with RVD, Lynn says, laughing as he added, that he paid a physical price for those memorable matches. 
Rob had a reputation for working a little stiffer. After our first match, I had bloodied my nose. I had blood on my shoulder, and Al Snow came up to me in the back and said, You look like you've been in a war. I said, It isn't supposed to be like this. However, Van Damme did pick up steam in 1998, but no one seemed to be carrying as much heat as the Dudleys. Bubba Ray had gone from stuttering goof to a swearing, foul-mouthed man full of rage and Devon was as mean and as nasty as he had ever been before. Now, their entourage included Big Dick Dudley, turned heel again, as well as Still Silent, Sign Guy Dudley, and the obnoxious ring announcer, Joel Gertner. At a Staten Island, New York show in July of 98, the Dudley's act had fans so hot that fans threw beer that hit Big Dick Dudley, who went over the rail to challenge any fan who wanted to take a swing. Security held off the fans, and the Dudley's match went on as advertised, with fans throwing chairs and other items throughout the match. Many of the Dudley's opponents grew weary of the pre-match rantings because the routine was now considered the Bubba Ray and Devon cutting promos to the crowd portion. Gertner was sharing even more raunchy things, such as poetry, into introducing every member of the family before the match would even start. It got kind of boring, Axel Rotten would say. Balls Mahoney and I would be behind the curtain waiting to come out, why they were still introducing everyone underneath the sun. But there was nothing boring about the violent intensity of the Dudley's matches. Whether they were pitching Spike Dudley into the audience, powerbombing opponents through flaming tables, or breaking the neck of Beulah McGillicuddy, ending her ECW tenure with a Dudley death drop, the team had a sense of true anger and danger that was noticed by all the fans and even the heel wrestlers. But ECW's last pay-per-view of 98, November to Remember, drew an ECW record 5,800 fans to the New Orleans Lakefront Arena. Although, again, its pay-per-view numbers were nothing to write home about, the show opened with the return of one man who was instrumental in ECW's early development, Terry Funk. By 1998, Funk had proven himself as one of wrestling's most durable and versatile performers, starting in 1965 as a young babyface and transitioning over time into a crafty traveling world champion in a maniacal heel and ultimately the aging gunslinger and hardcore legend. But it was 1998's November to remember Funk would assume one of his most challenging roles, a truly hated heel in ECW. Could the man who exemplified ECW spirit in many ways get himself over as a despicable villain to the ECW audience? Terry Funk was up for the challenge. He came out to interrupt Joey Styles' opening ranting. Funk would start off by saying that he had felt slighted by not being picked as Tommy Dreamer's partner. Dreamer had been having trouble with Jack Victory, and Funk appeared furious that Dreamer would turn to someone besides him for help. He ended up cursing at Dreamer and later attacking him, Dreamer refusing to hit back the man who had been his mentor. Unfortunately, the series of matches between Dreamer and Funk never really materialized because Funk ended up hospitalized with hepatitis in 1999. By the time he recovered, the angle, well, it was over. Hepatitis laid me up for about three or four months, Funk said. It was just miserable. I couldn't do anything. It took all my resilience and stamina from me. November to Remember also featured on their unlikely heel turn when underdog Mikey Whipwreck helped Lance Storm overcome his former partner Chris Candido. Storm and Candido had played the parts of a tag team whose members hated each other. Whipwreck didn't get to play heel very long as he soon joined the Sandman in WCW, making his debut at WCW's uncensored pay-per-view on March 14th of 99. FMW import 
Masato Tanaka made an appearance at November to remember getting over as one of the toughest guys in ECW history by shaking off chair shots and kicking out of the Dudley's 3D finisher before capturing the tag titles from the hated family, his partner, Balls Mahoney. Unfortunately, the future of the ECW-FMW deal looked uncertain by the end of the year, with Heyman claiming the Japanese company owed ECW thousands of dollars. By early 99, the deal had completely fallen apart with FMW, pulling Tanaka from a string of ECW shows after Bigelow and Chris Candido and Tammy Sitch no-showed an FMW pay-per-view. Bigelow was out of Heyman's hands because he had moved on to WCW to have a feud with Bill Goldberg. Heyman also felt he had made up for the no-shows by sending Sabu and the one-man gang as replacements. In late 1998, ECW employed a new ally, Elizabeth Tutt, the former pay-per-view executive. Heyman hired her as a consultant to handle marketing for ECW pay-per-views to the cable companies. By the time she was working for ECW, Tutt said issues about content were not as pervasive as they had been 18 months earlier. The WWF had gotten more into the ECW style. The WWF decided that they were going to now go in a different direction. Instead of trying to portray that everything was real, they were coming out and telling people it was now just entertainment. It changed everyone's perception about what wrestling really was. From her office in Colorado, Tut dealt most with Heyman and Steve Carroll, the guy running the business end. When it came time to put together publicity kits for upcoming pay-per-views, she said she liked Heyman, but preferred dealing with Carol. Paul was hard to pin down, Tut said. With Steve, you could get things done. He understood the business end of it where Paul was completely out of its depth. It was more than a familiar dealing as most people would experience. Carol, a syndicator and bodybuilding guru with experience promoting television packages and events, had been drawn into the company with the help of Heyman, who was a longtime friend. Depending on who you talk to, Carol found himself being asked to handle increasingly amounts of administrative duties when it came to ECW. Once Heyman broke away from Todd Gordon, ECW's corporate identity became HHG, and Carol became one of the most important people in ECW. Now, many people who did business with ECW said they preferred dealing with Carol, who understood business realities compared to Paul Heyman, which seemed to be a little blind. Many who dealt with both men also said Carol was preferable because when he said something, he did it and it actually came true. Tut said that many in wrestling had to adjust to the unique demands of the world of pay-per-view. Historically, wrestling had been built on the promotions of non-televised events, and promotions would visit cities in their territories everywhere, once a week or at least once a month. It was a closed system, and the promoters could just adjust their programs and matchups depending on how performers and angles were getting over. When you get into pay-per-view, a lot more has to happen as far as getting promotional spots and advertisings out months in advance, Tut said. It's really difficult in wrestling to do well when you don't know who's headlining the show three months in advance. I mean, with the guys, you might not know until two weeks before the show. It's just the nature of wrestling. You have to go with the flow as far as storylines are concerned. Tut said preparing promotional kits for shows was a matter of taking a calculated risk. You may not know what's going to happen on the pay-per-view, but at least you have some idea who will be featured, she said. I would come up with print ads, and I would take the top guys all around. Sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. Sometimes you just have to wing it. So that's going to be chapter 16 in the story. Very interesting things that we covered so far. Obviously, we're finding out that the executive that was with the pay-per-view company now comes on board, starts working with Paul. 
Paul adds her to the crew um, to be able to handle the business side of pay-per-view. Paul also goes ahead and brings in other people in the company to handle the business side, where he is mainly focusing on the creative side. It's a great chapter. It's very interesting. You know, we hear a lot more about Jerry Lynn, which I think is always an interesting thing, especially from as much as we get to talk to him on Front Row Material. We hear about the people defecting, heading over to WCW, how that affected ECW. When we get together next, we'll be covering Chapter 17. It's entitled Taz on Top. All right, guys, if you're enjoying what we are doing, please do me a big favor. All you got to do is go on over to iTunes and give Front Row Material a five-star rating and even leave us a comment. We love reading comments on the show. We love hearing from our listeners as well. Let us know what you think about our three programs, which are Front Row Material, The False Finish on Friday, and Over. All right, that's going to do it for right now. Hope you guys are having a tremendous week. Once again, do not forget, follow us on social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Instagram as well. You can follow Mikey Whipwreck at MikeyWhipwreck underscore. You can follow Jerry Lynn at It's Jerry Lynn. And you can choose to follow me. I am at Mike Freeland, M-I-K-E-F-R-E-L-A-N-D. That's going to do it. I will talk to you next time on Overbooked. The rule of NLW Radio never stops.